Hey everyone, Justin here with Whitetail Theories Podcast. On the mic, we have two special guests. We have Corinna McConnell of AccuForage, um, and we have Andy Gannis from South Georgia, longtime service side member. We're continuing our spring Whitetail Deer Management Tour here. Um, wanted to get both the fellas on. They they put their heads together often, um, and uh, Andy has a good bit of land that he manages mature whitetails on um, so consistently over the last few years. So I figured I'd get both the fellows on here. Um, now, what we'll do is we'll kind of start off, uh, Andy, if you could just tell the viewers a little bit about yourself. We, we've had Corey introduce himself in these last few episodes. So if you guys need to go back, you could check those out with Corey. Um, but Andy, kind of bring us into how'd you get started into hunting? I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. A young kid, my dad got me in the outdoors early and, um, you know, I really, really enjoyed getting out in the woods. It was, it was more, you know, about the shooting, I guess, whenever you're younger, you want to shoot something. And that's really what it's about. And then as I, you know, grew older and I, I started having encounters with some mature deer, just based on you know hunting over a period of time, I started really liking the aspect of, of going after mature deer and, uh, and wanted to do it with the bow. So I've, I've started bow hunting for, I don't know, about 12 years now. And it's really the only thing that I do. And, and, uh, Fortunately, I've got a piece of property I can manage, and and what I've really enjoyed is is you know I've got young kids, so I take them out and and kind of get to teach them through planting trees and putting in food plots, and so it's kind of it's neat to see the the land change, and then also at the same time kind of bring my kids into it and and show them what it takes to to kind of grow big deer, and a lot of that has to do with you know passing up your deer, but then also putting in the habitat too to hold the deer on the property. Awesome. And, you know, Andy, that was a, a huge reason why we wanted to kind of bring you on with this. You know, me and Corey had been talking, um, you know, we've been going over a lot about food plots, food plot equipment, you know, how people can get into it, spring, uh, spring seeding, uh, summer seeding, fall seeding. So, um, you know, we, we figured we'd bring someone like you in because we know you, you manage a, a pretty decent amount of property and you're also, um, you know, have your way of harvesting mature bucks you know i know uh recently we had just put a video out you do a lot with uh deer aging right that's right yeah i think it's kind of crucial to to understand the the age structure that you're managing because not every deer is going to be you know a giant deer and and uh you know trail cameras can tell you a lot and um i like to you know if, if i don't have a deer that's at the mature level i want them then i start looking at a younger age class with a genetic that, that maybe I, I don't want not to manage genetics, but mainly because I may have better bucks in that age class. And that's why I think it's important to kind of understand your bucks. Whenever you take them, you think they're an age class, you need to kind of check and make sure that your assumptions are correct. Cause trail cameras can, can only tell you so much. And, you know, it's, it's more about history than it is trying to judge a deer from a picture. Yeah, for sure. Now, what kind of, if, if you don't mind me asking, I'm just curious, and, and Corey, I'm going to have you chime in after this, especially because uh, being a biologist, I'm just curious what you think about this, but how did you kind of go about that route of, of you know, how you manage your herd right now? Well, I, so I, I've got a lot of trail cameras, and trail cameras kind of tell me how many deer, you know, obviously two and a half year olds, you, you, you're kind of making a guess, right? It's tough to see a year and a half year old buck and, and know that, Hey, this deer's a year and a half and this deer's going to be two and a half. You can, you can make some guesses, but 
So you start making those guesses at two and a half, and then you, you kind of have to monitor them year to year. But really, you've got to have a lot of cameras. I've got uh, about 600 acres on one track of property, and I run anywhere from 20 to 35 cameras, just depending. And, and some of those cameras I'm not checking often, but it's really just to kind of see how the deer move through the property. And then also, especially in the summer months, determine what bucks are summer in there that are going to be my age class deer that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of putting them in a pecking order, if you will. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of, uh, that's kind of why I wanted to start off with that to, to give the listeners just an idea of how you are, you know, how you kind of target bucks and things like that. Um, now, Corey, tell the listeners, I know you and Andy have a pretty good relationship. You guys talk often. Um, as far as how he manages his plan, is that something uh, that you've seen before? Because to me, it's it's unique. I've, I haven't seen it in that aspect, and I'm just curious um, your thoughts on that. Well, realistically, I've never seen it before, and, and you know, I've talked to Danny quite a few times about it, and it, it makes total sense. I mean, you're you're not going out there doing the typical calling, which is taking bucks out of the genetic pool based off of characteristics on their antlers because realistically their genetics are already in the gene pool where and if i'm understanding this right andy is out there taking mature aggressive bucks or they finally hit that age class where they're more than likely not going to grow any bigger and and they're just an older deer so it's not going to affect his gene pool a whole lot um and that's that's something that's not you don't see that anywhere yeah, I, I haven't seen it either. And Andy, that's why I, I wanted uh, I thought this was going to be an awesome podcast because um, uh, for for the listeners here, we are going to be, you know, talking a lot about food plots and, and basics and things like that. Um, but wanted to really give you a background that, you know, people do things differently and there's always a different way to work. And, and Corey, you being a biologist, you know, you've seen a lot of different ways and and Andy, I think your take on it is, is definitely unique um, and different and uh, definitely something that, you know, once I start working on my land a little bit more, I'm also going to be trying to do. Now, guys, we'll kind of segue here into what the podcast is about. So I wanted to touch on basics with food plots where we're trying to help everyone out that, that has been getting into food plots, um, even, even so not just basics, but maybe some things that will help people to, you know, get kind of rise above those taboos or, or confidence or whatever the reason is that they're not wanting to start. So kind of what I wanted to touch on was let's kind of talk about spring. Um, we were talking about spring, summer, and fall and, and times people plant. Um, so it, Corey, you can either start or, or Andy either or, um, but let's kind of roll into kind of what you do, uh, Andy, when you get started here into spring kind of how you ramp up and prepare for your uh, growing season so from a food plot aspect i mean there's a lot of variables i think you know getting into summer months where deer are starting to grow their antlers back and and that sort of thing but you know my my main focus is you know from whenever you're managing whitetail and you're putting in food plots for that purpose i think you've got to really look at what do you want to happen in three years? What do you want your genetics to look like? And, and uh, Mississippi State University or, or Deer University has got a, a really good podcast on nutrition that does have uh, while they are, you know, 
while they have a fetus in the springtime. And if you can maximize the, the genetic potential, and, and a lot of that is based on resources, right? So genetic potential can be maximized, and, and they determined this through a, about a seven-year study, I think it was. Um, so I'm really focused on what my spring plots and, and specifically my clover looks like, that and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing supplemental feeding with protein. But mainly to give my does, and, and that's what's crazy. A lot of people, you know, they only think about feeding their bucks. But your does carry the fawns, and those are going to be the genetic deer that are going to be there three, four years down the road. And those are the ones that you want to, you know, have the best genes. And, and if you don't have the food source in the springtime, then it's going to be that much harder, you know, three, four years down the line to kind of keep that that system or, or that uh, process in place. Now, I know we both, uh, you know, we were all talking before we, we started recording today. You know, you guys had mentioned some things. I know you just mentioned, you know, you're looking three years down the road. You know, a lot of people, I think they have that, that concept, uh, misconception of, you know, like we had said, you're planting your clover in the fall and you think deer are going to be eating it in the fall. Um, let's talk about that. Let's kind of jump down that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, so it looks like you guys are obviously planning for the future here. Now, what would you say since we're talking about doe management at this point, because obviously the fawns, you know, your reproduction of your deer are important. What would you say is a, is a good um, kind of some basics to know when it comes to what kind of food to put down for that? Um, what kind of helps with like, I guess, fawn growth and, and, and to help the doe provide that nutrients? Well, basically, it, it the deer kind of eat the same, like male deer, female, and fawns will eat the same thing throughout the year. They have more requirements of, you know, specifically calcium, phosphorus, zinc, whatever. But, you know, the best thing that I would suggest is having a wide variety of spring, summer forage. Um, that goes back to the whole smorgasbord effect that we talked last, last podcast. Um the more variety, the more deer are going to show up. And then if you can get large biomass food plots, such as, you know, your clovers, they grow pretty, they can grow pretty thick. Um, you know, brassicas are usually a fall thing, but again, it, it honestly depends on the hunter's per- objective. If they're like Andy, where they actually want to do the three to five year management plan to actually alter the genetic pool and whatnot and, and hit that genetic, um, what do you call that, Andy? The genetic uh, maximize the genetic potential. Yeah, maximize the genetics. I love that because you can't alter the genetics, but you can maximize them. Um, so yeah, if you want to do that, you, you're going to want to do a three to five year plan. But you know, I think a lot of people starting out in food plots just think I need the only reason people are doing food plots is to just attract deer to their tree stand. And that's not always the case, but that might be someone's objective. And if that's your only case, maybe spring food plots aren't aren't a thing for you because depending on what it is, it might not be attractive during hunting season. Yeah. I, I, can I chime in right there? Because you, yeah, you, you think you brought up a really good point. You know, people planting spring food plots, your, your bucks that come in the spring and summertime typically are going to have a different fall range. They, yep. they, know most most cases like you'll feed that deer all summer and i'm sure everybody's done this they fed the deer all summer and then they disappear to a different Mm -hmm. range for their fall so that's kind of how i came to the conclusion that look the does are going to stay in the 
pretty much the same area. You know, that's their core area. They don't travel like a buck does. Um, and they don't change home ranges that often either, unless it comes to food and there's, you know, a scarcity in food, then they'll travel a little more. But that's why I've really approached it from, I want to feed my does and that let that be the plan for my spring and summer. Like you said, I, I think clover's good in the spring and then having some sort of legume or something heavy to get through the, the rest of the summer. Um, that's, a I feel like the best plan to kind of Focus on the does because those are going to be the ones that are going to be siring the offspring that you want to hunt in three, four years. Right. Now, Andy, maybe you have experience in this, but I've heard a lot of experts in the in the food plotting industry saying, you know, spring food plots are practically a waste of time and money. All you're doing is attracting does to your property. And if you have an, an over excessive amount of does on your food plots and and on your property that they actually might kick out those more mature bucks. I personally don't have experience in that. I think it's bogus, but I want to hear what you have. I've honestly, and I, I, this is one of the reasons I run video oftentimes in the summer months, because you can really see how deer interact and, and pecking orders, whether it be, you know, male, you know, doe and a buck or, or even bucks in a bachelor group, you can kind of see those things i've never seen that myself where a doe is going to be pushing a buck off i mean it's it's never never in that way i don't think right and from my trail cameras i you know mostly over our buck yeah the bucks will actually push the does out of that specific site but i don't see them getting pushed off the property completely yeah no i i don't think so they just they don't go to those food sources and like i like i was saying i run protein and uh in a, in a gravity feeder and I get more buck pictures than I do buck, buck uh, doe pictures, and they're never at the same time. If the does come, it's it's typically at a completely different time. Usually in the middle of the night, the bucks are usually early afternoon and in the morning. It's uh, you know through the summer and uh, on in November. It's it's uh, that's how it is. But yeah, no, the the bucks definitely own the feeder, which tells me that the does really have no say in the matter. <laughs> right, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't chime in too much on that. And that's why I wanted you guys to kind of go down there. At. That's something that I, that's actually a first for me hearing that. Um, but then again, you guys have been more in the management realm than me. I just kind of got into it. Um, and, you know, my goal with it is to uh, long term goal of with us. It's our turkey. We don't have a lot of deer on the land that we have here. That's uh, a little bit more east but um you know for the turkey management we have such good flocks and we have such good populations and i mean they just they're huge birds especially for osceola so we wanted to kind of help them out and, and make sure that they had everything they had so that's kind of kind of my take on it so a little bit more and we're a little bit more on the deer realm than we are talking about turkey but um so fellas we had talked about um something i'd like to kind of touch on more you guys had said something about you know people will plant fall clover for you know in in hopes that deer will be eaten in the fall um what, what did you guys kind of mean by that so basically there there's spring planting so you're planting at least here in pa our weather's a little bit different than georgia and florida but you know you can frost seed which is late february through march and then your spring, your actual spring seeding is after the thaw and, you know, the soil starts warming up. And then usually that won't end until mid-June, I would say, is a good spring, like time to end for your spring planting. And then the fall planting would be, you're looking at August, 
September and that's pretty much it because then you're not going to be playing food plots closer to hunting season. Um, what what is your time frame down in Georgia, Andy? Yeah, I was curious yeah. about that too. Being being more southern. Yeah, it's 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 actually a, mine has been way different. Um, a lot of that has to do with kind of typically when we get rain. Our, our summer is so hot, like it's hot all the way through September and and uh, really into the first part of October. It can be hot, and so I typically my fall plots. So so I'm in. I'm in an area where the, the rut doesn't kick in until late November, early December. So my, my fall plots, I don't actually plant those until the first week of October, typically. Sometimes the second week. Like last year was the second week. I went a little bit later. Um, you know, I still had a good stand come up. You know, it's, it, I will say from a Brassica perspective, it's tougher to plant that. I, I had good luck because what I've had to do is find low-lying areas where there's a little bit more shade and a little bit more water in Nebraska seemed to come up a lot quicker that way. I, I know the shorter growing season getting into October is really difficult, but I, I try to do micro plots with Nebraska's in, in shaded areas. If I'm planning that late, right. Uh, that's kind of been my, my strategy, but you know, our, our spring plots really, and even whatever you're going to plant, if you're going to plant some type of legume, it's going to be, you know, may, at the latest to kind of get it in mid-May. Same, same with probably all the grain species like corn, soybeans, rye, wheat, stuff like that. You're probably playing the same time. Yeah, typically you want to get that in in you know, early April. That's because you, you'll get a little more rain during that month too and not quite as uh, quite as hot down here yet. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's in, we're mid-May and it's 90-plus degrees, supposed to be 95 this week. Wow. Yeah, it's it's definitely been hot. I was out there today. It was in the nineties, and it. I mean, we're we and Andy are about five hours apart. Um, you know, I've been up there. I've seen his food plots. Now, Andy, I, I know more about it now. So if I actually came to your property again now, <laughs> I understand it a lot more than I did before. But you have multiple food plots, and you you they're micro food plots. You said right. Yeah, I have. I have. I have a couple of big ones. So my property is. You know the shape of the property is long and skinny. Right. Uh, you know it's it's a lot. It's it's two miles north to south, and then it's depending on the you know area. I mean, it's a pretty pretty narrow piece. I mean, maybe three quarters of a mile wide. Um. So so what I've tried to do is is I'm, I've determined with trail cameras kind of where the deer travel, and I have about four different areas where the deer. Like I'll get different groups of deer in those four different areas, if that makes any sense. And, and so I've tried to put big food plots in each of those quadrants and then have micros that kind of go and feed into the bigger, bigger plots based on kind of where the bedding is on the property too. So it's somewhere where I can hunt, I, I you know, I'll hunt the big plots, some with my kids with the gun, but. I'll typically hunt the micro plots and try to catch deer that are leaving the bigger plots, heading back to bed, you know, in the morning or, or vice versa, leaving the bed coming towards, you know, the bigger food plot at night. And that's kind of how I have mine planned out. Yeah. And right. Corey, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Corey. So essentially what Andy's doing is he's, I don't know if what the deer travel was previous to your food plotting, but to me, it sounds like exactly what we do. We, we run, our destination plots, which we're looking at over an acre, running it to our micro plots or kill zones that are, you know, 
half acre or less, and then connecting them with, say, clover trails. So you're pretty much directing the deer where they where you want them to go. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, 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 I kind of planned it based on trail camera pictures and observations from, you know, I, I would just go sit up in, I've got some plantation ponds pretty open. I can determine how the deer move. That along with the trail camera pictures really helped me. I didn't, I, whenever I first you know, started hunting this piece, I didn't put a lot of plots in right away because I wanted to kind of see how, how I wanted to plant it. You know, that, it's, it's great to have food plots, but you want to have a purpose. And I try to, you know, if I've got free ground, I'll, I'll plant it in most cases, unless it really alters my plan of how I want them to travel. Right. Now, um, I, I've seen Andy's food plot, and I, I can't remember, uh, but Andy, you have, you know, me and Corey were talking on the last episode about um, a smorgasbord of of food sources, pretty much. Um, you know, the more food sources you have, the better. Um, just so our listeners kind of kind of get a feel for it, I know you probably can't name them all off, but what what would you say? What do, what do you have kind of going on right now? Uh, as far as let's let's just take uh, what you have going on right now in the ground. So right now, I've actually planted the uh, spring king. Um, and I have not been back over there to see it. It was coming up, but I haven't, I haven't seen what it's done the last month. I've just have not had a chance to go there, but, um, I've got that and then I've, I've sprayed and, and mowed, um, the clover. So, so typically I'll spray in like February and kill all of the, the excess oats and that sort of thing that were in the plot that I planted in the fall. Then I'll come back once, if the clover heads out, I'll come back and mow it, which it, it headed out in some, so I, I went ahead and mowed it. Uh, the key with mowing clover, too, especially in hot areas, you don't want to mow it lower than about four inches. I mean, that's really probably lower than you'd want to go if it's really hot, potentially really dry. So, you know, five, six inches high, that's, that's typically where you want to mow the clover. And so that's what I've got right now as far as food plots in the dirt. Um, probably... It's not the entirety of what I plant in the fall, but it's it's close. I mean, it's probably it's probably about three or four acres worth of planting. Well, how many acres total do you have on your six hundred acres? So total in the fall, I probably have close to seven. Okay. Now I've got a new food plot. Let me take that back. It was close to six. A little over six is last I, I, I did, but I, I put a new plot in, which I've got to finalize. I'll plant it in the fall for the first time because I've still got to get the soil right before I want to plant um, clover and that sort of thing. And it's going to be a it's going to be a big plot. It's an acre and a half. Probably once I finish, it'll be about an acre and a half plot. So it's going to be on the south end and I'll have two on the south end now. But this is in a different quadrant where there's a different set of bucks. There's a little bit of overlap, but. Um, I'm, I'm pulling a lot of deer from the neighbors on my, on the west side of my property with this one. Um, but it's going to be a big plot and hopefully draw and hold in, hold more deer. I've got a lot of bedding kind of on the east, the west, um, and even a little to the north now with this overgrown clear cut that's got about, I don't know, five-year-old pines in it. Now, Andy, I know I want to take a step back here uh, just because, you know, I have that. 
Um, I've been hunting my whole life, as you know, but it's almost like every time I talk to you and Corey, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot of different new, a lot of new different things um, as far as getting a food plot and deer management. Well, we'll just say, you know, game management on your property. Um, so a lot of the questions that I have are going to be uh, very similar to what maybe a beginner or a lot of the listeners that are, are listening in on this want to uh, hear. But my question was, you had mentioned uh you know, before you started really putting down plots and stuff, you were utilizing your trail cameras. Um, would you mind going to going into a little bit of detail with that as far as like, what were you looking for? I know you had mentioned pecking order and travel routes and things like that. Is that pretty much where you just kind of just patterning the deer and, and seeing where they were and, and why they were there and things like that um, to kind of get you to where you knew how to put your food plots in? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I run cameras in the summer months and, and like we talked about earlier, bucks will summer in one area and then, and then move. And, and so I've kind of, I run my cameras kind of based on, on that knowledge. So I'll run cameras in places in the summer. that's going to be a little bit different in the fall because the home ranges change. And so I'm, I'm trying to capture, capture the bucks, if you will, of kind of what's in, what's moved to a different range. I may have, you know, deer on the north end of my property that moved to the south end of the property in the fall. Um, and I've got them all summer, you know, on the north end. So I, I kind of set my cameras up that way in the summer months. And then when the uh, when the fall gets here and they, they kind of shift out of that summer pattern and, and, you know, really start hitting the hard mass like white oaks, which I don't have many of white oaks. Most of mine are, are red oaks. I've, I've got some trees I've planted that, you know, my kids will see benefit from. But uh it's not going to help me out much. So I'll run, I'll run cameras on, on hard mass. Um, you know, certain red oaks I've, I've determined that drop really heavy and they drop consistently every year. I'll run cameras there. And then between there and where I, I know they bet, I'll run cameras on, on various trails, just really trying to determine how, how the deer are moving from the food source back to bedding. Um, because they're still patternable. They're just on a different pattern. Everybody's like, Oh, well, they, they disappear, you know, whenever the season comes in, but they just shift their pattern. And, and you've really got to be able to move the cameras at that point to, to figure out what, what their, what their fall pattern is. You know, the first, every time I hear that, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear, uh, they're either nocturnal or I can't, I don't see them on my trail cameras. I'm like, cause they're walking yep. behind the trail camera. <laughs> like They've done switched up their, you know, just joking around. They've switched up their pattern and more than likely they're coming right by it and they're coming in the direction that the camera can't see. Yep. A lot of people don't move their cameras at all. They'll put them out in the summer and they'll be there all the way through the season. And you got to be able to move them. And, and so I've, I've got some that are stationary, you know, food plots and that sort of thing. But um, I shift a lot of my cameras. So I'll run probably anywhere from 15 to 20 through the summer. And then I'll throw out additional ones and then move the ones I had set up. You know, I'd say I moved 70 percent of the ones I set up in the summer into the different pattern for the fall. Now, are you pulling cards or do you have a mix of like cell cameras and cards? And as far as that being a two-part question, um, so wondering if you use cards or cell cameras. And then also, um, how often are you kind of frequenting those spots? That's a frequently asked question we get all the time is how often should I check my cameras? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. So any place that I am not wanting to go that often, meaning it's maybe – really close to a bedding area or I have to go through a bedding area to potentially get to it. Not that I would have to get through it, but I'd, I'm having to go close to a bedding area to get to it. 
um, those are going to be where my cell cameras are. I, I don't want to have to go and visit them. Um, so those are more deep in the woods. Now, like if I've got on a feeder or something to that degree, I'm running a, a, a normal camera. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm only going in and checking any non-cellular camera. Kind of my rule of thumb is if I have no plans to hunt, of course, my property is two hours away. But if I have no plans to hunt, there's no reason for me to check the camera. Like if I'm not wanting to go to that spot, like I've already determined there's a buck that's more patternable somewhere else. I'm not even going to check another spot because I don't want to intrude on that spot. And that's where I think people go in the woods and they think, you know what? I need to check every single camera that I've got out. And that's just not, not the case for me. I've even got some cameras, like if they're in a, you know, we get into the rut zone and I'm, I'm running cameras on scrape lines and that sort of thing, or in a, really tight funnel area that I don't really know how the deer move through. I may put cameras out and not check them until after the season. I know that sounds really crazy, but unless I, I need to go and hunt in there, I will run cameras just to observe. I might run two or three cameras in an area and then I'll take all that data and determine it. If that time period, the next year, I want to have a stand in there so I can slip in there during that window because deer are very habitual year over year. Um, I've had some of the same bucks walk the same trails almost one year to the day during the rut. It's, it's a habit of, they know where to go, where the does are, and they're going to go through their, their process of checking the does in the same way. I, I feel like anyway. Right. Yeah. I see the same thing. I mean, if you can find a lockdown area where they're ready to tend a doe, but the, t- the doe isn't ready to, to accept the buck. It seems like those are almost almost the exact same areas year to year. Absolutely. And it's, it's very that's why I love deer so much, man. They're they're just they're a different breed. They are. I've I've got a little hardwood head in the middle of some plantations pines. Justin, you and I went through it's where I shot trashy. We walked through there whenever you came up. Oh yeah, yeah. You saw how thick that was in there, right? Yeah, we were we were pretty much, uh, you know, hunched over about three quarters of the time we were in there. That's a that, and I've opened that little spot up in the middle for a, a food plot, and I plant, plant you know, brassicas, something something. It's a micro plot, so I want the most tonnage for what I've got. It's less than a quarter of an acre, but that spot is like you just said, Corey. It's it's one of those spots where. There's a lot of does that bed in there, and it's typically if you can if there's a buck that that is is in the fall pattern and is in that block, that's where he's going to lock down first. So that's if you know I'll run cameras in there, cell cameras, so I don't have to go in there. Right. That way I know, hey, there's a buck in here that's checking for does, and then that's how I kill trashy. Honestly, uh, running cell cameras, and he was there with the doe for like five days straight. And once the wind was right, I slipped in, and you know he came out with with the doe. Jeez, yeah. I bet that that cell camera was killing you watching him on your camera all all those five days. <laughs> two, and... two hours away at work. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was I was actually over uh, on the property and could have hunted, but the wind wasn't right. My buddy was like, "You just need to go in there." And uh, nope. I was like, "I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna play it right. You know, I don't want to mess the spot up." And and my approach nope. for an east type wind, and that's the way the stand was set up, and I didn't have to go. You know, it was it was literally a hundred yards off the dirt road, so it was perfect setup to kind of enter and not do anything to disturb it. But it had to be an east wind, or I'd blow everything out. Right. Yeah, trashy was a trashy was definitely a monster. And that that spot, I know we we were in there. It's just it was crazy seeing it how 
it, it you know it had its entrance it had its little escape hatch is what i like to call it where we seen you could literally when we were crawling through it you could see i was surprised we didn't find a shed in there um but you could you could see where you know they were tunneling through there and to kind of get from the road to to the plots um plus you had a lot of briars in there too if, if i'm not mistaken right yeah a lot of briars um and, and some water, you know, it, it does occasionally hold water. There's a pond, a uh, spring-fed pond on the north end of that little hardwood head. And, and so that's where typically all the deer go, and they bed around close to that pond. And I'm where the stand is, I'm literally right in smack dab in the middle of the bedding area. So um, I planted a bunch of deer pear, and, and I, I cleared up a little spot. It was kind of overgrown and really thick, and the deer liked it. But um, I opened it up, turned it into a food plot, which, at you know, five years down the road, it's not going to be a food plot any longer because I've got deer pears planted in there. And, um, but they typically will drop October through December. So I'll have a constant soft mass food source when soft mass isn't, you know, something they can find easy. Yeah. And, and I know we also went to a spot where you had, which I've actually been finding them now. I was out today on public land and was finding some where you had the, the sawtooth acorn. Oh Yeah. yeah that's that's what he was telling me Corey. when i first saw it i was like oh man these are all over the spots i hunt he's like yeah you want to try to get on those early bow season that was actually something i didn't know um so when i was putting cameras out today i was you know those were some spots that i was i was targeting to kind of see uh they were still eating on we had such a huge excess of food here this year especially on public land that it was really hard to to narrow things down so um curious to see what this season's going to be like yeah those sawtooths well no when you can find them up here those they're they're good because i i believe they're they're part of the red oak family and they they're they drop earlier than any other red oak so i think they're um I think I, – I don't know if they're from a red or a white. I don't know if they have a – I'd have to look again. But I was thinking they were more white if they were anything. But they do drop in like – mine drop depending, and I'll watch them through the summer. But, you know, usually late August they'll start dropping. But, you know, by all – the whole month of September, it is it is crazy. And, and so my father-in-law planted a bunch of these 20 or 30 years ago. So they're all in little blocks and – uh I actually just posted a video of a bunch of deer I saw opening weekend. I mean, I literally, I, I would see eight or ten bucks on one set underneath the sawtooth. It's it's uh, absolutely insane. Oh man, that's gonna be that's gonna be my my a spots right there this year. So thanks for that tip. <laughs> I uh, literally have seen them and I just never did my research on them and, and didn't realize how much of a gold mine that really was. They definitely are. So let's kind of talk about uh, just because I want to I want to make sure we kind of cover, especially from having two experienced guys here on this podcast. I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm trying to cover uh, some questions that that I was asked by people kind of getting into the game here. But um, let's talk a little bit about what you guys are doing. I know you guys said pretty much in the summertime, you're not more so you're just observing, right? 
as far as planning. planning yeah, just goes. as far as like what you're doing with your food plot. Is there anything that I guess that this would be a better question? Is there anything that as far as planning of uh, food plots and, and preparation and things like that you guys recommend to do during the summer months? During the summer, watch your weeds. I I, I like to stay away from planting, at least up here in PA. I know. I'm sure down in Georgia and Florida, Andy, you guys definitely stay away with it because of the lack of water. But um, up here, we just, we really pay, if we got our food plots in on time, we really just pay attention to weed control and, you know, clover, if it's got seed tops, cut them off as soon as possible to get more seed put on the ground. Um, but other than that, we don't do a whole lot, to be honest, in the summer. Just kind of sit back and watch what, watch the deer and kind of, get an inventory and you know and that's why i wanted to ask that question because you know i feel like you know uh, summer for a lot of people they have a little bit more time on their hands with doing things and i just wanted to kind of get y'all's opinion on you know when is too much too much um so really it sounds like once you get that that spring uh crop done and and your everything's mowed and and sprayed and and you kind of have your setup just kind of let summer do its thing now when do you guys kind of transition that i'll add i'm gonna add one thing to that um justin i i feel like you know grow cages fall spring summer are really important you want to have a grow cage for for one it'll it'll let you know how heavy the browse pressure is on your food plots i mean through the whole process because you know, from a spring to a summer to a fall plot, you're planting different things and they may be palatable for different reasons. So, um, you know, if you're not doing constant soil samples, I feel like a grow, a grow cage will help you determine if they're eating whatever is in that food plot at that point. If not, then you might need to do a soil sample to check for, you know, are you missing a nutrient? Are you, do you have your pH right? Because, all those play into factors of whether or not they, they're going to browse that over native vegetation. Right. That, that's a great point, actually. And we don't do a whole lot of that stuff just because we got so much planted. Um, but like clover, every plant that's even in our blend, they all mature at different times. And they're, they're going to be, the deer are going to be more receptive to certain plants at certain times. And that, that could change within an hour. You know what I mean? I mean, the deer they're they're self-regulators and they're going to eat what they want to eat yeah yep i i agree i i I just feel like that's a that's something that a lot of people they want to just plant stuff and then move on and you know i like seeing if if what i what the work i put in if it was worth the effort you know right And and that's a, a huge reason, and, and that's kind of why we wanted to do this podcast a little off the cuff is because, you know, a lot of these questions, um, and then we obviously we have thoughts and, and ideas that we think of um, as we go through this, but, you know, a lot a lot of the things I see, it's it's that's what I think a lot of people kind of either get the misconception or there's some kind of miscommunication or something along the way, so that's why I wanted to, you know, throw our education that way um, as far as with this podcast, but, um, you know, the the cages i remember we saw them at at your uh when we were checking out your place andy and i'd never seen that before and then obviously it made a ton of sense because it's like okay now you can physically it's not cameras and things like that you can physically see uh you know the crop or the plot growing um and you're able to determine what you know what you need to do from there keep you from wasting your time one other thing that it does is if you have this will let you know if you 
have enough food plots put in mm-hmm. or don't have enough food plots put in. You know, I, I a lot of people will plant stuff and they'll assume, oh, my food plot didn't come up well. That might not be the case. It might just be you have such a high deer density, your food plots weren't able to survive because there are too many deer on it. So you need that. That lets you know you need to increase the acreage of food plots that you have if that's happening. And that's why the grow grow cage is, you know, another thing that I think if you're planting food plots, you got to have one. Yeah, me and Corey talked about that on the last episode with with micro plots. How sometimes you'll put them down and they just mow right through them, and it's almost like you didn't even if you feel like you didn't even do anything. Yeah, I you know that's how my brassicas typically are. I, down here, it doesn't get cold um, until much later, so the deer really, you know, they don't really gravitate towards them when I want them to. Um, but I can get them pretty thick, and, and that actually helps me. It's almost like a, I won't say a natural deterrent, but they don't really eat them. And I've done this two years in a row on, on the plot I was just talking to you about in this in this uh, bottom. Two years in a row, I've had brassicas come up really good. Brassicas and kale is kind of a broadleaf mix. And um, the deer ate them, but not heavy. But the week before I was – it was maybe a week, week and a half before I was, I knew I was going to be there for a whole week to hunt. And it was coming into kind of a pre-rut phase. I went in and spread fertilizer right before rain. Mm-hmm. Immediately the deer take to them because they can smell the nutrients. They can, they know there's nutrients in it that they want and they desire. And that really is something too, that, you know, if you want to put out some type of attraction, Go fertilize your food plot when you're going to be hunting it for a period of time, and and you will see the deer come there and prefer that area more than any other area. Yeah, for sure. The only thing I'd like that I'd like to add on that is just make sure your rain is coming because you don't want to burn out your food plots. Yes, yes, that is the key. You got to have rain coming. Don't put on plot. <laughs> yeah, we, I know we were talking about that. Uh, we didn't go down that route of, of it, use it as an attractant, but that was something Corey had said was, you know, definitely make sure the rain, I know down here, we are struggling for rain. We are, I mean, even I was canoeing in the Creek today and there was a couple of times I was telling Corey, I had to, uh, scoot, scoot on a couple of spots that I bottomed out on. <laughs> so it was, it's definitely, we're definitely dry here. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely hurting us. I'm, I'm hoping we get some rain soon cause we need it. I need to get, yeah, I just got some plots in the ground and where they're at, it's going to be hard to, to irrigate, but luckily I have it right near an orange grove. So I'll be able to, you know, if I need to utilize the irrigation there, I can. Yeah. It's hot. It's not even, not even summer yet. <laughs> I know, man, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a rough one. That's why I was trying to get a lot of work in now because I'm like, that way I can go ahead and call it. Um, now, uh, Corey, is it, I know that I'm going to ask you this because, you know, we've done the last couple episodes together and Andy's kind of just joining us. Um, you know, we had talked on equipment and basics and things like that. Since we have Andy here, is there kind of a, a route that you'd like to go down that you feel like would be important for the listeners to know? Yeah. So let's, let's Andy, let's go down like what equipment we use. I don't know if uh, you listen to the last one, but up here it's pretty basic pretty similar to farm equipment you know you're going to go through and and till and drag and seed and then compact if you want to um but we have more of a clay rocky soil where from what i understand down there you got more of a a sandy clay soil yeah it's it is it's a, a lot more loamy and um 
you know, depending on, on where the plot is, I've got, you know, different, different grounds, I guess. And, and some grounds are higher and, and you get more of that clay type dirt. And then, you know, some of the lower stuff, it's, it's actually really good dirt. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I typically, I mean, what I do is I'll turn the dirt, like you're saying, I'll turn it with a heron disc and, and, uh, come back and drag if, if you know, hopefully that's, right. you know, you know, from a, from a perspective of, you know, not everybody has a tractor, right. You know, and, and so, so there's a couple ways you can go about it. And I've, I actually just got a grain drill this past year and it was one that uh, was a, a big grain drill. Somebody cut it in half. It's a four foot drill. It's, it's got, you know, it's perfect for, for small plots and it'll work on bigger plots. It just takes you a little more time, but you know, in some cases where maybe you don't have, I know that my, my buddy that I was telling you guys about before uh, we started this, he's, he's got a ton of food plots. He does not have a tractor and he right. has, he has it down to a science. I mean, he goes and he sprays and he kills everything that he wants to kill. He, he knows exactly what chemical to put in his sprayer and he sprays and kills it. And he comes over it with a grain drill, pulls it with his four wheeler and plants his food plots that way. And, you know, he conserves a lot of seed by doing it, number one. And then number two, he doesn't have to have a tractor. He can do it with a four-wheeler and just, you know, it's got a, a hit lever on it. And it's an easy way of doing it. And, um, you know, the only thing that would make it better is if he had a cold backer. But, you know, you don't really need that necessarily with a grain drill. Right. Yeah, and, and up here we don't – I don't know. We're kind of iffy on the, on the grain drill, mostly if you're just starting out because with the rockiness and how – the clay is you almost need to have a well-conditioned plot to make a, a no-till drill work and yeah. and i think that's a big misconception that a lot of people think like oh tilling's terrible and all that and yeah everything has its pros and cons but you know to be able to get the work done on a fresh pr- plot up here you're gonna need some some plow and harem type equipment um so but that's neat that you you guys definitely Almost do the same thing, but you use a, a bunch of different equipment. And I really like the idea of cutting a, a larger drill in half and using it for micros. Yeah, they're really, you know, relatively inexpensive. I, I mean, I got this one for like 800 bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a, it's it's cheaper than a tractor for sure. So, you know, I know, I, look, I still, do I still put in plots with a hair and disc and spread seed? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I've got a Colts packer and, and, you know, I pull that behind a four-wheeler as well and, that's a relatively that was actually more expensive than the grain drill i think it was yep. like nine bucks you know but but the cold packer especially if you're doing small seed and you're trying to get clover in the dirt for the spring purpose that cold packer is essential for small seed plant mm-hmm. yeah that was yeah, something and- we talked on that last episode was was if there's a will there's a way we you know we've we've we kind of put out a few surveys and little questions and things like that to kind of see where people uh, were when it came to food plots and what they wanted to hear because at the end of the day we don't want to we don't want to be a broken record I don't want to keep repeating the same thing over and over again that someone's already seen on Onyx and and Mossy Oak and all that other stuff so we were trying to go down a different route with what people really wanted to know and that was a huge that was a huge concern a lot of people had was you know how do I how do you know what kind of I guess maybe the the big pictures of tractors kind of intimidated people where they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to have a, you know, twenty fifty thousand $50,000 tractor to be able to do this. And come to find out most people are using four wheelers and, and homemade 
I'll call them homemade, but homemade devices to to get the food plot in. And then as they progress and, and get it really down to a science of, okay, I'm, I'm producing what I want or um, this is where I'm at with it and I feel more comfortable about investing more, um, then they kind of evolve from that. Right. Like I said in the last podcast, really there, there's probably no reason to go get a 60 horsepower tractor unless you're playing over five acres a year because mm-hmm. it's pretty much a luxury and and if it speeds, you're not it speeds it up if you've, if right. you've got land tractors definitely a lot quicker right. yeah yeah if you if you got the land um and then a lot of people we we're talking to they're just doing those small ones i know andy we when we went to yours you definitely got a a pretty big setup and it's 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 still crazy to think that you know how you made your game plan off of trail cameras like i understand it and, and get it and everything it's just uh it just kind of shows you know, me and, and hopefully the listeners see it too is, um, you know, something is starting out as just using woodsmanship to pattern deer is, is your, almost your whole strategy behind, you know, how you set up your food plots. It is. And, and, you know, I know a lot of people frown on feeders, but, you know, feeders, food plots, they're all food sources for a purpose and, uh, they all accomplish different things. And I have no problem putting a feeder out or throwing corn out because, it's, it's, it's kind of my way to condition the deer and I can determine if this is like, if I put corn out on the ground and the deer, I don't get the traffic that I want there. Well, I know based on that, that that's probably not an area. If it's, you know, somewhere probable for a food plot might not be as conducive. Right. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it serves a lot of purposes. Just got to get out there and put cameras out. I totally agree on what you're saying. I mean, like I said earlier, Deer self-regulars. If they don't want corn, they're not going to go get it. Right. Yeah. And and if they don't, then you know you're not in the not in the spot where they typically travel. So you've got to kind of readjust your plans. And I think that's why it's important to have a lot of trail cameras and and put them out and and only check them if you have a reason to check them. Don't check them because you want to see a big buck on a trail camera because that's if you don't have a stand up there, then then now what are you going to do? I mean, it's kind of I like to leave them as long as possible untouched right now when you do and when you do go check your trail cameras is there like a certain time i know i've been kind of trying to stick to a regiment between 11 a.m and 2 p.m that is typically when i'll go and um the only thing i would add to that is i'm really conscious of how i go to check the camera Mm -hmm. you know sometimes I could I could get through a lot quicker if I took certain roads through my property to get to mm-hmm. my camera, but I will purposely go back out the same way that I came in. So I'm I'm not dis- redistur- I'm, I'm not redisturbing or, or disturbing a new area. I'm going back through an area I've already been through. So I go back out that way, and I'll go a, a mile. I'm not kidding, a mile out of the way to get access to a different trail camera so that I don't I don't mess with the center of the property. Right. I don't want to drive through the center of the property. I think a lot of people, you know, they're going point A to point B. Let's get, get as many trail cameras as I can. And quite honestly, I don't always have time to get my cameras based on how I approach the cameras. So I have to really be strategic about which cameras I really want to get, knowing how I'm going to have to get to them. Right. That's the way to be. And we can kind of tie that into food plots, too, where, you know, I'm sure if you're playing a food plot, you're going to be putting a trail camera up. Um you know, maybe that trail camera is on the other side of the food plot from where you're parking your car or how you're entering. 
just because you don't see a deer in that food plot doesn't mean they can't see you. More than likely, there's going to be a deer fairly close that can either smell you, see you, or hear you. It will be bedded close to the food plot, especially the food plots like micro plots close to a bedding area. I don't, I don't, that is, that is where I run a cellular camera. And that's one of the benefits of a cellular camera is I don't have to go and check the card. I put it on the food plot where I don't want to disturb. And, you know, it's, it's easy at that point. I, you know, whenever I see the activity, I want to see at that food plot with bucks pushing those around during the rut, then when I slip in there on the right wind, but outside of that, I don't have to check it. Right. Now, uh, you know, and and I, I'm gonna go back here. Um, you know, Andy, I know you had mentioned about uh, you know a lot of people don't like feeders, and and that's something that me and me and Corey had talked on with food plots. How you know someone will see you kill a deer and and have the food plot behind you, um, and they're like, oh, that's cheating or that's not fair. I mean, if anyone's been listening to the last 52 minutes of this podcast, not one thing you've said is has been you know okay. I walk out and the deer walk in front and say shoot me. You know these these deer you're having a sneak in on they know i mean i mean you have a huge mature buck population um you know you have really big bucks uh on your property and for those that haven't seen um you know annie's got some some pretty nice ones on there consistently year after year um so these bucks aren't just because they have food there these bucks aren't coming out every day at the same time and andy's checking his his watch and saying here we go it's it's game time i mean you have multiple plots that you have to decide which one they're going to be at you know you said you couldn't even you had a big buck on your camera you couldn't even go to it because uh the wind wasn't right so you know all that woodsmanship in in patterning your animals and you know strategically getting in there it doesn't matter if you're if you're hunting near a feeder or a food plot or a you know corn dumped on the ground or a salt lick or whatever at the end of the day these animals they know how to survive uh that's that's what they do and they do it better than most uh and it's it's not as simple as walking out there so just because you're putting a lot of hard work into a food plot and stuff i mean if, if anyone's been listening to this you know you can see there's a there's a whole lot more to it so um, you know, kind of, kind of look at it in that light. I know I told Corey this on the last one, Andy, I don't know if you listened to it yet, but I told him, I'm like, when I first met you, my whole perspective of private land changed. Now I grew up 50, 50. So half of my family hunted public and the other half had, uh, plots and, and leases and things like that. And we had some land in Virginia. Um, but it was, it was one of those things where I didn't look at it as intently, I guess, until I got older. Um, and then coming to your place and, and us taking, literally, we took a whole day, Corey, of, of exploring Andy's property um, and him showing us his food plots, his travel corridors. Uh, we found a deadhead. We found a couple deadheads, actually. Um, you know, we found some sheds. Um, and, you know, exploring that gave me a whole new insight on what, you know, having your own land and managing your own land is and it's definitely far from uh you know your your watch going off and and you getting to your stand at a certain time yeah and and i tell you that's that's one of the things you know that's right after deer season so all the trails are fresh tracks are fresh um you know if i'm gonna disturb the woods in any way shape or form and try to try to learn more about how the deer moves through my property, that's the time to look. And, and I do it some, you know, shed hunting during turkey season, but right after the season when there's still fresh scrapes and fresh rubs, um, that really helps me map out even further of some potential opportunities of where I might want to put it in a food plot or, um, you know, hang a stand or, 
you know, recondition the deer. And I've, I've got a couple of places now based on things that I've walked around and areas that I know I could push up dirt and, you know, put in a quarter acre food plot that I'm probably going to do. It's one of those things that's going to take time. I've got to get a dozer in there and all that sort of thing. But, you know, that's, I think a lot of people want to hunt, they hunt and that's it, but they don't put in the extra effort. If you put in the extra effort, you'll find that hunting season doesn't have to just be a September to December or September to January. Mm-hmm. It can be a hundred percent, 365 days a year. And you just have to plan out what your objectives are during those parts of the year. You know, what, what food plot am I doing now? What food plot do I want to set up to put in? And those are all going to be different time frames, right? And they're going to be outside of deer season. So um, anyway, I, all right. I, I think I maybe look at it a little different. Maybe I'm, I'm a little more obsessed no no you're you're not man we're we're all equally obsessed it was it was 97 degrees today and the first thing i did when i woke up was have coffee throw the canoe on the truck and then go to some spots because like you said now's our hunting season's from september until april 28th um we we end deer it right at the beginning of february so now for me in may is the time where i'll get out there and, and look around and find sheds and things like that because i don't feel as i still obviously use some woodsmanship and things like that i mean even i was on the phone today and i was still whispering and i'm, I'm like why am i even whispering you're like i'm on public yeah. land and it really doesn't even matter yeah. but it's just staying in those habits because it's to, you know to some people yeah it's a september through uh till my tags are filled or whatever but for a lot of us it you know it's a it's a full lifestyle and especially the way prices are uh you know i i was telling christy today i was like i'm already excited for this season just because we have some private places and we've got some uh some things we're doing for management to help things and i'm really excited to now almost feel like it's uh before it felt like more like a hobby now it almost feels like it's a necessity especially you know going to the grocery store and looking around for five seconds and you're like oh my gosh i'm so ready for I'm doing inventory checks now in my freezer. So it's like, <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's, you know, that's why spring plots are good. I mean, it lets you know what's your, what your dough, dough numbers are going to look like. So you can start planning like how many does do I need to take off, you know, the beginning of the season, how many do I want to take off after the rut, you know, whatever your preference is. But I mean, that's, that's uh, such a true thing. I mean, I, I do it for the enjoyment of, you know, see my kids in the woods and managing property and being able to see deer get to maturity. But I like to eat deer. I mean, I've got deer hamburgers right now in the, in the fridge about to uh, go on the grill. That's, that's what we eat at my house until we run out. And inevitably we always run out before season gets here. So. <laughs> you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad you mentioned the does and, and we're kind of touching on hours. So what I'll do is I want to ask this question. And then if you guys have anything that you want to add to just the topic that of discussion, you know, we can jump down there, but Annie, I know you said about your does, do you, you have a pretty large excess of, of does, right? Yeah. Our, our dinner numbers are extremely high and, um, so I've, I've luckily have really good communication with my neighbors on the East and the West side of man. Um, so we, we kind of strategize on how many does we're going to take and based on trail camera pictures and, and we share pictures of bucks and does so we can all stay on the same page with age. And, um, like we were talking about earlier, they summer in some places in winter and others. And my neighbors may have the summer side of the deer and I may have the winter side and vice versa. And so, at least by sharing the pictures, we're able to kind of determine 
hey, this is a deer. It's on my place right now. If he shows up on your place, I, I'm just letting you know I'm not going to shoot him. I think he's three based on the history I have. So we can kind of strategize from that perspective. But then we get a, a count, too, on the number of does. And we actually shot – it was about 2,300 acres between the neighbors on my east and the neighbors on my west and, and my property. I think we killed 63 does last year. That's a good bit. And, I mean, you guys, did did you get – did you meet the goal that you wanted to get or did you need to take more? We really were probably a little low. Now the year before, I think we shot like 50 or in between 50 and 55. I don't remember the exact number, but um, we, our goal was 75 and we were a little shy of it. We didn't shoot as many bucks as we, we thought we would this year either. So um, I think we'll still be in a good shape, but probably I'm guessing that we're still going to probably shoot 50 plus this year just to maintain because you got to think you got a lot of a lot of fawns and offspring and that's another thing too with food plots you can kind of check food plots during the uh spring too to determine what your phone recruitment is i mean there's a lot of coyotes on my place and if i don't manage those then my phone recruitment rate goes down i don't need to shoot as many does so you kind of got to take the full management as approach. Otherwise you're going to end up with a, a, a lot lower deer population than what you had to start with. If you're not managing all aspects of the herd. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's something I, I learned when we were there. Um, you know, I got to kill my first night coyote, which I'm actually looking at the tail now. I don't know if you saw it, but I put it on a little mount just because it was, it was a really pretty coyote, but I know you have a, a good bit of coyotes there. Um, and do you notice, I mean, as far as like your, let's just say for this uh, year, for example, I mean, you're taking into consideration, I, I guess, that's how you determine how many does you're going to take is, is kind of what your fawns are looking like, or do you just do a, a full range of what's on your property? Yeah, no. So we'll see what the recruitment rate is based on really our does drop late June at the earliest. Most of a lot of them drop in July all the way through. Oh, okay. And so the trail camera pictures are, are really what help us determine, okay, this, we have, X number of does, how many of them are we seeing with, with fawns come into the trail camera picture? You know, so that kind of helps us know what our recruitment rate is. And if it seems to be low, then we'll probably lower the number that we, we shoot that year. But but all of that will determine kind of what we want to take out of the, the herd. That and the number of does we have on camera, obviously. But um, both of those are kind of things we look at. Now, this is just a, a crazy question here, but newbie newbie management question here. Uh, is there a certain way that you look at taking out does or you just does it, you know, obviously if it's not with a young one or something like that, that's how you determine it? Or is it just, you know, a doe's a doe? Yeah, our, our does drop fawns, like I said, really late. So I don't, and that's is kind of puts us at a little disadvantage because we're we're kind of catching up we don't shoot does early in the uh in the year you know during during bow season we're not typically taking any does okay uh, usually we'll wait until mid-october late october when the fawns have been properly weaned and that'll be when we start looking at you know an initial phase of does we don't shoot them all at that at that point and then we have a uh late season doe harvest where we actually try to see how many does we can kill an entire weekend between me and the neighbors. And that's kind of our, <laughs> if you will, but you know, it, it all that, it kind of helps us stay on the same pace. So we're not, you know, taking out too many early and then we're, we're way over 
and then also it allows for us to have enough does to kind of keep the rub in play and, and make sure we have enough offspring. But, you know, shooting too early, you know, if the fawns, maybe maybe they're not showing the buttons yet on their head. And, you know, you, you'd hate to shoot. I don't like shooting a – I try to manage how I shoot the does with the fawns. And ideally I'm not going to shoot the fawn with a doe yearling, but I would with a buck yearling potentially. I'm taking out the genetics that will keep that buck there if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of like that perspective. Do you feel like taking a, do you feel like, uh, taking the doe that has a, uh, like a button buck with her? I mean, will that kind of like speed the process of his development or? No, it's, it's just, you know, typically a doe is going to push that, that button buck is going to leave. Oh, and they may still gotcha. just based on, you know, age class structure and that sort of thing. But, but I'll shoot a, a doe with a button buck over a doe with a doe yearling, if that makes any sense. And Corey, I mean, you may agree or disagree. I, I don't know. Corey, Corey might have a good take. Yeah. What's your take on it, Corey? I was trying, I was just sitting here absorbing it. Cause I mean, that's just another thing that Andy does that you don't hear anyone else doing. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And I totally agree that those, those yearling bucks are going to get pushed out. They might immigrate back in in a couple of years or whatnot, or they just go to a different spot on the property but that's a good good uh good way to to kind of condition your doe herd and and work on your your just your whole herd um what i usually like to do i don't get that specific honestly i will not shoot the first doe that comes in in a line because that's your lead doe and that's usually what teaches the rest of your does within that small herd um but again, I don't, I don't get that specific, and I think it will work, even if someone did want to pick up that type of management. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely doing some, uh, you know, showing some results too. And, and obviously, we we always talk on the White Tail Theories podcast about all types of theories and, and things we do. But um, you know, a lot of the people we have on here, it does work. And if you guys have seen Andy's pictures or videos. Um, you know, he has really good deer population. I mean, you're, you're over here talking about taking 50, 60 does and really still needing to take more. So, I mean, that just shows you that, you know, you have what they want and they just keep coming and keep producing, which is <laughs> a great thing for conservation. And it's able, I know Corey, you had said taking it into depth like that, but that's how Andy, you're able to do that is because you have that type of population that now you're at the point where you can dig a little deeper, um, and really start picking apart how, how you're going to manage it. Yeah, I mean, it's not a big track, but the deer density is high. Like I said earlier, I've been able to kind of position cameras in a way where I know there's four different areas that, that a gr- groups of bucks will travel these four areas, and that's kind of how my camera's positioned. And, you know, it helps the properties long and skinny, but it's not a lot of dirt if you really think about it. Um, and, and typically I may have anywhere from four to five shooters a year based on maturity level, I'm not saying that they're all like, you know, giant deer, but you know, I've, I've, I've watched from food plots I've implemented. I've watched the deer class of, of, uh, you know, the, the four-year-olds might've been one twenties, you know, five years ago. And now I'm seeing a lot, lot more in the one thirty to one forty range at four than I saw. And, and so that lets me know that, you know, there are things that are working and that's, that's kind of how I'm gauging my success is are the majority of my four-year-olds now 
a lot bigger than they were five years ago whenever they were four. Right, and that, and that brings up a huge thing that we touched on on the podcast last week, uh, Justin, is that the way this industry is, they're, they're promoting like, oh, throw and grow, you're going to grow food plot, you're going to bring in a 160 each year you do it. And it's just not true. And I mean, Andy, you put in, you, you've been in this for a long time. Well, I mean, he's been in, he's been in service side since what, like 2018, 2019, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe even earlier. Than that. You I know what? Like, I was thinking it actually it, might be 17. I was looking at it at one point, but you've been in a long time and then even longer before joining us. Right. But, um, man, habitat management isn't, it's not a short game. It's a long game. And, and I'm sure you can speak on this, Andy, as you kind of do some more research and you get out there and do these different practices, start, start at a entry level, you know, just do your, do a single food plot, make sure you do some, you know, inventory and, and some analysis of how your deer move through your property. And then, you're going to get hooked. No matter what you do, you're going to get hooked and you're going to want to do exactly what Annie's doing right now and try to produce higher quality bucks. And then it's just going to keep getting better and better and your addiction is just going to grow more and more. You know, and at the end of the day, conservation, when we've mentioned this multiple times, conservation wins on all fronts with this aspect. So this whole mindset, this is something we've really been been harping on just because, I mean, at the end of the day, like we're not going to sugarcoat it. And Andy, I know you're just joining us for this, but, you know, we're so sick of, of you know, what we see every day with the industry. And, and we were mentioning that 160 inch buck that, you know, you see your neighbor kill a 160 inch buck on his food plot. And the first thing you go out and you're like, I got to get the exact same plot that he had and put it the exact same way and we're sitting here like for all you know he's been watching that deer for five years uh you know like how you are where you know you're watching it at button buck stage and you're watching it develop and grow and and see what it turns into um and you don't hear all that when you when the neighbor says hey i killed 160 he's not saying i killed that 160 and i've been watching it for x amount of years and he gives you every single detail he's done before he killed it he just says hey i did this and you know what he's using so that's something we've been really harping on with people is and that's a huge reason why i wanted to have both of you guys on here is because andy i know the way you do it i've never heard of it you know, Corey's a biologist and has been in, in the food plot game a while and, and he hasn't heard of it, but it's successful and it works um, for the area and how, you know, the spot you live and in the, the land that you have, um, it works great for you and you're able to keep dissecting it and, and making it more. Um, but for all the listeners out there, you know, if you could take something from this podcast, it's, you know, you got to get out there. You have to get out there. Not When we say get out there, we don't mean get out there and scare all your deer and stink up your spot. We mean know what's going on with your property if, if you are managing property, which this segment's about, and um, you know what's going on with your food plots and, and have a bigger goal than um, you know I, I just want to shoot something over a food plot because, yeah, that might work. Um, but if you if you have a little bit more of a a, a little bit longer plan there, um, you know you're going to have more success consistently as opposed to you know you might take a 160. I, I've heard it my whole life, especially back home. Someone has a food plot they kill a big deer and they're showing you a deer picture from 10 years ago, and I'm like, well, what about now? What do you have now? And they're like, oh well, that was you know seven years ago, and I'm like, well, gosh, that that guy could have just been coming you know passing through. 
Um, to me, and I'm not judging anyone. A success is a success. This isn't the point I'm trying to make. The the point I'm trying to make is there. There's so much work, and there's so much that needs to go into it. But if you don't get up, you don't do it. You don't pay attention to your trail cam.